Welcome to the New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, the New Mind Creator. Today, I'll be interviewing Aaron Baker. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you'll receive alerts when new episodes are available on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, please leave me a review on iTunes or Spotify. Aaron, where did your journey begin to become a social psychologist? Probably when I was a kid. I have always been fascinated by people. Um, Why do they do what they do? What makes them do what they do? How do their brains work? And I grew up with two parents who were academics. They were in a field that's very similar to psychology called communication. And I'm sure I just picked up on some of the things they were fascinated by. And so when I went to college, I took a first year seminar that was on sort of the mind and how that creates violent behavior. And I was hooked. And so I immediately changed whatever major was in my mind at the time and said, I'm majoring in psychology and ended up going all the way through undergrad. And then a few years later, getting my PhD in psychology. And then now I've used that PhD in uh, the tech world. I was at Facebook and Microsoft for a while. And now I use it in my business as a coach for entrepreneurs. That's fascinating to me. How does the mind create violent behavior? You know, uh, I don't remember all the details of it, to be honest, but really it's more of, there's so many factors that go into creating who we are. We're born with certain genetics and certain predispositions from our genetics, but we're also really shaped by our environment and the parents that raise us, the friends we grow up with, the teachers we have, and the systems that we live in. So systems of oppression, we all, no matter who we are as humans, we all live under the same systems. And so any one of those things, the messages from you know people growing up or the systems you're in could create uh, reasons that you have a hard time, you know, keeping your anger in, or there's reasons people for survival go off and do things that they normally wouldn't because survival mechanisms are strong. I hope that makes sense. I agree because the environment plays a a big role as well as parents, because I'm thinking about it on a simplistic level as well. Like when you put a cake in the oven, that's an environment. So mm-hmm. if the if the temperature is the appropriate temperature for that particular cake, it will come out good. But if it's the wrong temperature, because each cake requires a different temperature and a different length of time it stays in the oven. And so are humans because we have different things inside of us. And in certain environments, it will bring either the best out of us or the worst out of us. It could foster those things that are incubating within us, just like a fish out of water. It has emotion 
in water or out of water, but out of water, the flapping looks foolish. Absolutely. You know, I, I like to think, I love this metaphor about baking a cake. Uh, I like to think of us as humans as almost an orchestra. And this, I'm going to try to explain this in a clear way. But, you know, when you say, oh, a part of me feels this way, but a part of me feels this other way we all have different parts of ourselves that are kind of working in a system, kind of like we all have roles we play in our families and in our, our workplaces. And any one of those parts, say it's a tuba or a trombone, um, can get affected by something that happens. And then they're playing louder than any other instrument in the orchestra and out of key. And end up throwing the whole system off. So if some part of you gets hurt when you're a kid, that may mean that part then acts out um, in situations when it feels threatened, which can lead to all kinds of different behavior. So if I'm someone who, when I was a kid, uh, got bullied, which is true, um, when anything indicates that I'm being bullied for who I am, I can react with quite a bit of anger. And if I were a different had a different set of circumstances, I might react uh, with violent behavior. Thankfully, I don't because I've worked through a lot of that myself. <laughs> yeah, because uh, also when they might, the other instrument may scream out for help, like you're saying, they may play louder and some will go inward. Like mm -hmm. some people who even get bullied they turn inward and they begin to do things that are self-destructive, whether it's cutting themselves, mm -hmm. drinking, drugs, you know, it's, it depends on what's in that human. And I use yeah. this example because, uh, you know, the singer, uh, you've heard of the singer Lionel Richie. Yeah, absolutely. So he was doing an uh, interview with Oprah several years ago. And I remember seeing it and he talked about, how he was exceptionally sensitive as a child. And, you mm -hmm. know, boys are this, you know, not supposed to cry thing, you know, you've heard before. And even in his time, it was definitely that way. And mm -hmm. instead of his parents, you know, saying toughen up and, you know, no, you're not supposed to do that. They allowed him to be so he got a chance to develop into one of the most prolific songwriters and singers because it was all a part of his makeup, that thing within him that caused him to be the signature of Lionel Richie because otherwise he could have become hardened. And then we would never hear of the beautiful songs like All Night Long and all these different hits he'd made throughout the years. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And and when you talk about, you know, these instruments that go inward and they don't play or they, they are destructive, you think about how many people whose instruments we're not seeing out in the light of day or even within ourselves, what are we not allowing to play beautiful music? And, you know, Lionel being allowed to be his fullest self and not hardened meant that his full orchestra was literally... <laughs> in our culture, making amazing music. And imagine if that's the world where we can go inward and looking at all these parts of ourselves and 
where are they screaming for help or screaming louder and where are they going inward and how can we get them back to playing the most amazing music because we are all incredible orchestras and every instrument is meant to be there helping play the music of who we are. Yeah, we uh, we definitely all belong in that orchestra. Mm -hmm. We just have to figure out where we belong or what's our role in it. Mm -hmm. And when we play out a key, like sometimes that could anger other people because of sounds, because sounds elicits an emotion within us. So some people may become agitated if we are singing off key, while others will be able to have a more nurturing response and say, hey, let me teach you how to play this instrument or you should be in this key because that's essentially what you're doing as a social psychologist. You're helping people you're observing and you're also giving that information to others to be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm using my social psychology and I'm also coaching people to help them understand how can they bring all of who they are to the work they do in the world and to their life, because I think life and work are both very important. But the more we can understand ourselves, who we are, what the parts of ourselves are like and which ones are acting out and which ones aren't, the more we can understand how our minds work and the more we can really be who we are, the more we can connect with other people and the more joy we can have in our life. And the more if we're people who are oriented towards impact or mission-driven work, the more we good we do when we're in that space. It's really powerful. Yes, we didn't make ourselves. It's, it's interesting, once you take a step back and look at it, why do I like what I like? Why do I like certain colors more than others? Why do I like certain tastes and smells? We didn't make ourselves, so if we could just embrace the fullness of it, like you're saying, being expressing all of who we are because we didn't make ourselves Mm -mm. and being true to ourselves, not being, uh, you know, you would have some people, of course, just go overboard just to be seen. But that's actually a cry for help as well. Mm -hmm. So we just have to recognize it and be able to be the helpers that we are just like a body. Our body works together. And if my head itches, my hand helps me by scratching it. And we ought to be helpers to others in our own way because we have different gifts and we serve in different ways. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that so often happens is because we grow up in a social environment, we look around to other people. What, how am I supposed to do this thing? What's the right way to do this thing? Who am I supposed to be? You know, somebody tell me who I'm, how I'm supposed to be, who I'm supposed to show up as. And it's not necessarily always at a conscious level. It's just sort of, we're kind of always looking around ourselves. And it's really easy to say, oh, I should be like Joe over here, or I should be like uh, Jesse over here and to lose touch with who we are as unique individual people with something valuable and um, 
special to bring to the world. And so part of a lot of my work in the world with my coaching clients is to help strip away all those messages that we got around how our uniqueness wasn't valuable and to bring back more of that and to use more of that because that is what is actually needed in our relationships and our families and our social systems for each of us to bring our strengths and gifts. If we didn't, we would just be Joe or Jesse, right? Even uniqueness is a word that really stood out just while you were talking to me. And it's because music, even uniqueness in music, if there's every artist is singing the same style or the same rhythm, it doesn't have the same it doesn't have the same effect as if each one expressing differently. Just like different artists you may love. From the very first key or very first chorus, you could almost tell the artist because it's a, it's a theme. No matter what song they make, is a theme to that particular artist. But if all artists tried to do the same thing, it would be no fullness. Absolutely. And you even think about literally their voice. You could have an artist who's evolved their style over time, but the minute you hear their voice, you know who you're listening to. I think Lady Gaga is one of the prime examples of that, who has shifted her style so many times over the years. But the minute you hear her voice, you know exactly who she is. She doesn't sound like anybody else. And chances are, if you listen to to Lady Gaga or anyone you listen to, you don't want Lady Gaga to sound like uh, Lionel Richie, right? You don't want Lady Gaga to sound like Tony Bennett. She can sing with Tony Bennett, but you want her to sound like Lady Gaga. Yes. I, I saw, uh, I think it was during this past holidays, actually, uh, Christmas holiday. Um, she was actually singing with uh, Tony Bennett. Uh, they did a little duet together. I hadn't seen him in so long. I was like, wow, that was pretty cool that those two were doing it together. I've I've seen her once with with Tony Bennett and yeah it's it's wonderful to see how she can evolve because we all evolve as humans we don't stay stagnant over time and yet there's an essence of her that never goes away and that she's always very true to she's a really great inspiration for someone who's just so willing and eager to be her full self, whatever that full self means on any given day. What is your one of your greatest discoveries in social psychology thus far? What, what is one of your greatest discoveries? My biggest discovery, and it's not really being social psychology. So the social psychology was what I studied and I'm a social psychologist technically by PhD, but I am a lover of humans and I do a lot more with coaching and I'm learning a whole lot around uh, different modalities for therapy. And I just, I'm just a big fan of humans. And my biggest discovery has been fairly recent and it's this night, this idea that we are like an orchestra, that we have all these different parts of ourselves that are meant to work together, that have 
positive intent for who we are. So parts like we may have an achiever part, we may have a, a part who likes to be productive. We have parts that maybe be vigilant and looking out for our best interests. And so often the parts that we don't like about ourselves are the ones we're trying to cut off and we're trying to almost exile to, you know, other places. And the discovery is really that we need all of these parts of ourselves that even the ones that we don't like, like we talked earlier, the ones that cause us to be violent or cause us to be violent in words, all matter in some way. And if we can be curious and compassionate towards, towards those parts, we can really get to know them and understand, why do you make me do what I do? What's going on? Why are you here? What are you afraid of if you stop making me do those things? So if you stop making me be violent towards my, my friends, or if you stop making me cut myself, or on a less extreme example, what are you afraid of if I stopped achieving? And the more we can get to know these different parts of ourselves, the more they come into that harmony, like an orchestra, and the more we can grow to really like who we are and trust ourselves to do what we want to do. And it's a great discovery because so much of, I see this with my coaching clients all the time, and I see it with colleagues and friends, we've motivated ourselves for years by trying to banish the parts of ourselves we don't like. We've tried to motivate ourselves through the things that quote unquote sabotage us or hold us back. And all that does is perpetuate a sense of shame that we're not enough, we're not capable, we're not okay human beings. And the more we get to know these parts of ourselves and like ourselves, there's a whole new way of being in the world that is kind and compassionate towards ourselves. And when we do that, we are more kind and compassionate towards others. Why do you believe we are, we so try to mute those different parts of us that doesn't seem to fit the status quo? A lot of it's shame, um, shame and guilt. We, whether it's, from ourselves or from other people or society, there's sort of these beliefs that float around, around who we're supposed to be and what makes a good person. And so it's really easy. And it's not always bad qualities. I have a client who banished her free-spirited self because that free-spirited self in her mind led to not being successful and not having the life she wanted. And the more we've actually discovered that free spirited self, the more we're realizing her work and her family and her life need that. But she was told it was bad. And there are lots of part of us, parts of us that we are told are bad. And the only option we see is to try to cut them out of ourselves. And this goes back to, what you said earlier on when you talked about the different stories that we tell ourselves and mm -hmm. are told to us. But the story has no power until we tell it to ourselves. Somebody says something to us, it could be hurtful. And if we attach ourselves to it, 
And then we began repeating those things. And we'll live into whatever picture that is that someone gave us. And we took it. Yeah. We take, we are living in all of those stories. And one of the things that is so powerful to do for yourself when you notice that you are someone, because we all are living in our stories, is to ask, where did that story come from? Was there something that happened that created that story? So I created a story when I was 17 that I wasn't smart and capable because I got yelled at by my dad for getting three A's and three B's one semester. Um, and that drove a lot of my achievement behavior for years. But it doesn't have to be something that it came from an event. It could be, okay, uh, maybe there's some messages I've gotten from teachers and family or, oh, wow, every time I turn on the TV, this is the message the media gives me about what it means to be successful or achieving. Or you start looking at our systems of oppression. And when I say systems of oppression, I should be specific. So whether or not you want to admit it, we live in a society that is patriarchal. We live in a society that's white supremacist. Uh, we live in a capitalist society. And all of those have an effect on all of us and how we show up. And so maybe that story we're telling ourselves about like, oh, if we take time off, we're lazy is not necessarily something that happened to us, but a message that's been repeated over and over in a capitalist society that values our productivity as a sign of our worth. Yeah, the productivity thing is being challenged since COVID for sure, because we are finding out that we don't necessarily have to be in the office like every day. And some businesses are adopting models of, you know, working from home, uh, sometimes or part of the week, if not all of the, you know, the entire week. So uh, it's challenging to the status quo. Like you said, we, we've trying to live into these different uh, things that are set before us that we don't even recognize that is happening. Mm -hmm. uh, I know um, we're living into something each and every day. We're living into a picture. I remember Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was talking uh, several years ago during an interview and they said, you know, the interviewer asked him, he's like, how on earth did you accomplish all of these things coming from Austria? We know he was a bodybuilder. He started as and, you know, won a lot of awards, became an actor and even the governor of California. He said it was easy. I saw a picture and I lived into the picture, but we are living into a picture oftentimes and we are not consciously aware of the picture and that picture could be a feeling associated with everything is associated with a feeling anyway but it could be something visual we see as well yeah we are and what you just spoke to is so profound we are living into a picture and all we need to do is change the picture Arnold had a picture that allowed him to accomplish and achieve in ways that most people don't. And many of us, I work on this myself on a pretty daily basis, are living into a picture that's limited. This mm -hmm. is what's possible for me. 
This is what I'm able to do. This is what I'm capable of. We live into a picture of who we are, which often puts us as flawed, not enough, uh, someone we should change. And so part of this beautiful work that I talk about with, you know, being the orchestra and understanding all the parts of you is to think about what's the new picture you can create for yourself. If you bring all of you to your work, what might be possible if you started to believe that you are capable, that you have all these gifts that you've been hiding, that the things that you don't like about yourself could be transformed into things you love about yourself. Then what happens? What could you actually go do in the world? And what's possible for a society that lives into that every single person? What, what was it that made you get into or led you into coaching? Yes, long kind of winding path. So I, I told you I was really interested in social psychology in college. And I immediately didn't want to be a researcher. I grew up in academia. Both parents were really accomplished in their fields. And the more I recognized that academia was studying a whole bunch of interesting things, but it wasn't actually doing anything for the real world, the more I thought, what could I do with my skill set? So I talked to my academic advisor at the time and what we landed on, we didn't was it was coaching. I didn't know that that was coaching. This was 2005 or six. So, you know, well before coaching kind of took off as a thing. So I went to social work school and realized quite quickly that I wasn't interested in working one-on-one with mental health. Um, I absolutely respect mental health care professionals. It wasn't for me. So I went, okay, well, what am I doing with my life? I ended up back in a PhD program and finished my PhD and still didn't want to be an academic. I wanted to do something where I could take what I understood about humans and do something with it. So I ended up at Facebook, uh, very much not on my radar or something I was going to go do, but Facebook was trying to make the world more open and connected. And they were hiring people with social psychology backgrounds And just over the course of that time, when I started mentoring people and then moved into a management role, I started coaching people. How do you want to grow? Who do you want to be? And finally, some family stuff came up that made me think I really need to not be in the corporate world. And I had this inkling that I wanted to start a business one day. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just try this thing called coaching. It sounds like what I was talking about with my advisor in 2005 which was something around, I want to help normal people through normal life, which now at this point, there is no such thing as normal. There's no such thing as normal life, but (laughs) best could be described as I wanted to help people live uh, more full, joyful lives in their careers and in, in their work and in their life and just their personal lives. And I hired a coach uh, still thinking to some degree that, this field, you know, I have a PhD, like coaches, they go get certified over a weekend and then call themselves experts. I was a little bit down <laughs> on the field, right? I thought this is a little bit full of crap, but I hired this coach and she started helping me see things I couldn't see myself. She started asking me questions that I had never thought of in my life. And 
I started taking those questions to the employees I had at Microsoft and all of a sudden they were having these, Oh, maybe I don't want to be at Microsoft anymore. And I just, I fell in love with this, this practice. And so now every day I get to, I work mostly with entrepreneurs, but sometimes people in corporate really help people create that picture that Arnold Schwarzenegger had for himself, not his picture, but whatever their picture is and get to know who they are and like who they are and trust who they are to create whatever they want to in their worlds. And it's, it's just absolute joy to see people living authentic, creative, aligned lives and doing that in a way that creates impact in the world. Can you look back now and see the nine-year-old Aaron, the 12, the 14-year-old Aaron, having this in you already and maybe expressing it already, but in a different way or didn't even know that you were expressing it during the time? Oh, it was definitely there. Um, it's interesting. I'll go to college and I'll go backwards, but in college, uh, all of my friends came to me for, you know, working through their problems. And then now I want to make a clarification. Coaching is not advice. <laughs> it's very <laughs> different than advice. But back before I had the words doctor in my name, my parents were called my, my parents, my friends were calling me doctor. <laughs> um, oh. And so I can trace back to when I was little. Um, I was a really shy kid, but I was observing everybody all the time. And so I can go back and see how there were little inklings of these curiosities about how do I understand people to help people be happier? Um, and that's a very childlike way to think about it. But yeah, it was always there. And it's, it's so interesting. I talk to a lot of people who enter entrepreneurial fields and they think they're starting over as if this is a completely new thought in their head. And then we trace it back and almost inevitably the thing that they love to do when they were six years old is coming through in how they're building their business. It's so, it's so interesting that it's almost that we bury the true essence of us mm -hmm. and we try to latch on to a job that doesn't really express who we are all in the name of making a living because we're living into this picture that society has set that standard you get a job work nine to five and all of these norms that shaping us that you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. and we leave who we really are and become an imitation and it hurts us now we can do things and that doesn't necessarily mean that's what we were designed to do like I've said this before, and I observed my, I grew up with my great aunt and her husband, and they were older. And he, my great aunt's husband, he was one of the most, uh, he was so bright to me. I mean, he was just so smart in like everything. And I remember one day he was trying, he was doing something in the house and he needed a screwdriver. And 
he didn't want to either. He didn't want to go out in the in the yard in the you know driveway, go into his truck and get a screwdriver, or he didn't have one. So what he did was he took a knife and he screwed the screw, and it worked. It it went in, and he took it. He took the knife and he separated from the rest of the knives. And any time a project would come up in the home and he didn't want to go outside, he'll use that knife. Either you scrape some paint or do some more screws or what have you. And over time, the rivets that attaches the wooden handle into the knife begin to wear away. And eventually it just broke all together. So he had to uh, throw it away. So we, even though the knife wasn't designed to screw in the screw, it did. But over time, it break. And just like humans, some things we aren't designed to do, and we can do it for a period of time, but over time, it breaks us on the inside. So uh, uh, that story is so poignant on that. There's this interesting piece where it seems so innovative, right? That he pulled out a knife to screw the screw in, but then thinking about that repeated thing over time. And I think there's a book I read a couple of years ago called The Big Leap. It's by a guy named Gay Hendricks. And he makes this distinction between your zone of excellence and your zone of genius. And your zone of excellence is the one that you keep getting rewarded for. So that's the knife that is continually screwing you know, in the screws, but that's not what the knife was for, right? And it's not the genius of the knife, but we get hooked on this thing that is what people are telling us we're great at and sure, we're good enough at it, but over time we can get to this place where we feel like, oh my goodness, I I can't do this anymore. Our zone of genius, which is where, you know, we're doing our natural thing that we are, our strength, what we're strongest at or what we're meant to be doing. The challenge there is that when we're doing that, it feels easy. Mm-hmm. And then when it feels easy, we don't believe in it. Because we've been taught to be, we're hardaholics. <laughs> we, <laughs> life is supposed to be hard and our zone of excellence has probably been hard so we don't believe in our genius because it's too easy and so what do we do we go right back to that zone of excellence right so if that knife had gone off to do its thing cutting the things it was supposed to cut perhaps it would have said well what am I doing this is too easy let me go back to the screwing in screws <laughs> Yeah, instead of cutting this, these, you know, this meat and these vegetables, it's too easy. Right, it's too easy, and so many of us, we deny our genius because if it's easy, we don't think it's valuable. Yeah, and yeah. so we 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 tell ourselves going back to telling ourselves stories. We tell ourselves stories that that we're not good at anything, um, and that's just because the things that we think are easy are not valuable. So I'm really good at coaching and sometimes I have to remind myself that because it's easy doesn't mean it's not valuable it means that I'm actually in my zone of genius and should be doing more of it not less true it's like it's what caused you to leave Facebook and you know these different areas you could have just stayed there yeah and not be your true self sure I'm really good at 
what I did at Facebook. I was doing research to help figure out how to make Facebook a better platform. I was really good at managing people, but really good is not the same thing as genius, right? And so, yeah, I could have kept going, but there was this, there for all kinds of reasons, these little pockets of, but I'm not quite as happy as I could be. There, I heard someone say, uh, maybe last year, I believe, or maybe even the year before, that the basketball player LeBron James, his secret power is his ability, his IQ, his basketball IQ. That's his secret power because he, mm. he recognizes where everyone is supposed to be on the court. And that's why when the Spurs, I don't know if you're a sports fan, but mm-hmm. when San Antonio Spurs played him in uh especially in 2013, the first, um, the second championship, I guess he had the coach, instead of playing the status quo defense, Greg Popovich, what he did was he told everyone to back in the lane and just clog the lane. And it almost short circuit LeBron's uh, mind. Cause it was like, it just threw him off to have that done because he wasn't good at shooting the jump shot yet. So he did that. And, you know, we, we could so easily become short circuit if things don't go the way we probably, you know, should orchestrate it. But that's his superpower. And then you, you got uh, basketball players like uh, Michael Jordan, his, you know, his secret juice was his intensity. Mm-hmm. And the way he just superseded any obstacle. What is your superpower that you have come to know to come to know this far in your journey? I love that question, and I love that you mentioned Michael Jordan because I grew up um, with a ba- <laughs> I grew up with a basketball in my hand. It is other than coaching the love of my life, <laughs> and uh, Michael Jordan was my hero because I grew up in the nineties when the Bulls were on their pretty epic, you know, run um, at the top of things. So I have a big admiration for Michael. Uh, My superpower is I am able to be present with people in a way that most people have never experienced. I welcome their greatest strengths I welcome their biggest perceived weaknesses. They can be messy. They can be imperfect. They can be pretty much anything. And I will hold all of it with deep compassion and love. I will remember it for months, if not years on end. I've had clients who have said to me, how do you remember that thing I said a year ago? And that's because I'm just there for all of them. And when people come to me for coaching, they come to me to create specific outcomes. You know, they want to grow their business or they have a few people who are leaving their corporate jobs and trying to figure out what they're doing next, maybe an entrepreneurial adventure. And what they come away with is a feeling of being so deeply seen and held that they can't replicate in any other place in their life. And it's amazing to me just how much we as humans need that we need a place where we can cry and 
break down. We need a place where we can brag about how great we are. And we need somebody who will love all of us no matter what. Yeah, just like that song, you know, heard some years ago, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. (laughs) It's true. And that's, that is my superpower. I remember before I started coaching, a friend of mine said, I've never met someone who is so willing to listen without judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think about our current world, which is so polarized. Um, There's a lot of angst out there whether no matter what side of the political spectrum you are on. And I just imagine what would happen if we could all show up from that space. It's a little bit lofty goal, but what would if we could all show up from that space of just listening with non-judgment and curiosity about who are you? What makes you tick? And why do you believe that? Not from a judgment place, but just, yeah, where where'd that belief come from? And that's, a, and that's another way uh, the societal norms has the structure before us has really caused us to be divided. Who said we had to have be on one side or the other of the political spectrum because Absolutely. it was set up for us to be divided. It just divides us. And mm-hmm. I think we have more in common than we have different, you know, but it's so polarizing when we, you know, have to be on these, we think we have to be on these separate sides. Well, and it all stems from, let's go back to the orchestra. We have parts of other people that we ostracize, right? We don't like, I'm, I'm a member of the LGBT community and I have been part of, you know, discrimination and oppression. Um, But it's not just certain identities. We, we tell ourselves that there are certain parts of people that are not okay. And then we go argue or we get afraid of those people. And, you know, we have some reason because really going back to being in the podcast, there are people who are violent and there are things to be afraid of, but we live in this culture that's all about how do we ostracize exile people that we don't like. And it all comes back to the fact that we are doing that internally as well. And so I have this very lofty belief that the more we can welcome all of ourselves to the table, the more we can welcome everybody to the table and create a more inclusive and less polarized society. I hope to see that in my lifetime. I don't know. I'm painting the picture like Arnold of that's what, (laughs) that's what I'm creating. (laughs) (laughs) What inspired you to launch your podcast shift starters? So I started first with a podcast called life in the end. And that was inspired long before I had this understanding that we're all an internal orchestra (laughs) um, by this idea that we're all walking contradictions. You know, a part of me feels like I should do this and the part of me feels like I should do opposite. And I wanted to think about how do we create more understanding of ourselves internally, but how do we create a more open society where we can be Democrat and Republican, spiritual and scientific, all of these things. So I started to explore these sort of paradoxical things. And then I realized that that was interesting, but a little bit limiting in terms of what I wanted to talk about. I am obsessed in a good way with humans and human behavior and 
how we can more deeply understand who we are to create change in the external world. And so I just broadened from this concept of exploring these different paradoxical ands to let's just explore how do we understand our internal worlds in order to create change in the external world. And it's been, the podcast has been on pause for a little bit because I'm writing two books and it turns out two books and a podcast plus coaching is a little bit much for me, but it's been a fascinating exploration of, you know, what do we need to do internally to be able to be on a big mission? I, I interviewed one woman who, you know, wants to move the needle on racism in her lifetime and okay, who do you have to be in order to show up for that mission day in and day out when it's such a, uh, a big one and also going to face so many challenges. And I just keep in, enjoying having people on the podcast who have different perspectives around how do we start these shifts that we want to see in the world. What's the name of your, well, books? You have two that you're working on. Have you released yeah. any? I have not yet. Okay. Book writing is a journey. I've been working on them for a bit. Um, I don't have a title for both of them yet, but all of it is around this concept of being joyful. And it turns out the more I talk to people about joy, really joyful in your business, because I work mostly with entrepreneurs, but the more I talk to people about joy, the more I find that people have these really interesting associations with joy. Um, I have a good friend who said, oh, if I pursue the thing that's joyful, I'm going to be sitting on my couch watching Netflix eating McDonald's and I went oh well that's interesting and then another friend of mine said if I pursue joy I'm cutting out all the bad emotions that's not okay with me and I believe joy is back to what we've been talking about this whole time joy is about connecting with who we are uh, joy is one of the only emotions that we can experience alongside grief and sorrow and compassion and we are most joyful when we are connected to our strengths and our geniuses and we're connected to the messy vulnerabilities of ourselves and so I am all about how do we help mostly entrepreneurs and business owners because it's a little easier to work with than sort of the broader context of joy but how we help people who are out trying to make shifts in the world through their businesses how do we help them be more joyful through being more themselves and doing things their way. And so I'm, I'm writing one book that's more conversational around what is joy and what stops us from having joy and how do we fill up on it? And then this other book is going to be a little bit more specific about what are the specific tools for creating joy in business? And they're actually not just business tools, but their life tools it just happens that when you sell a book, it's easier to, to help people understand the book is for them if you tell them about business versus all of life. If someone wanted to work with you, what's the easiest route? Uh, the easiest route as of today, when as we're recording, I will say my website seems to have some weird things going on, but you can find me on my website. Um, it's erinmbaker.com and then I also have been in the last couple of months really spending a lot of time connecting with people on Instagram and you can find me there at Dr. Aaron M. Baker um, don't forget the M there's all when I married someone with the last name Baker apparently 
I married into a very popular name. So doc, at Dr. Aaron M. Baker. What is your one to grow on? What valuable piece of information would you like to leave our audience with? I want everyone to know that no matter how broken or messy you feel, that all of you is valuable. And I'll leave with a short Chinese proverb. I may, I may not have it all together, but the idea is that this woman took two pots every day, one on her left side and one on her right side down to the watering hole. One pot had a crack in it and one pot didn't. So every day she'd go down to the watering hole and on the way back, one pot would have a full pail of water and the other would be about half full. And after years and years of doing this, she was talking to the pots or, and one of them said, I feel like such a failure, the one that has the, the crack in it. You know, every day you spend so much effort going down to the watering hole and filling up with water and I can only bring half of it back. And the woman said, I wonder if you've noticed on the path, the pot that has full of water, that path on that left side has nothing on it, but the path on your side pot with a crack in it, I think it was the right side, has all kinds of flowers on it. The woman says, that's because I knew of your crack. And so I planted a bunch of seeds for flowers along the way. And so every day when you come home, you water those flowers. And I pick those flowers and giving, give them to my friends. So even the cracked pot has enormous value, well beyond the perfect one. And we are all cracked pots. We are all watering some seeds that bring joy to people's lives. Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and True Serum. Head over to www.mauriceflornary.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.